0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website.
1: Good morning. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event uh, on wealth booms and debt burdens. Uh, one of the events which we're running in partnership with the University of Southampton and our Connecting Generations project. Uh, we'll hear first from Professor James Sefton of uh, Imperial College. James, of course, is one of the great national experts on generational accounting and uh, has new data showing ex- measuring exactly what transfers are occurring between the generations, both through public and also through private transfers. It's going to be fascinating hearing his talk. We're then going to have a uh, set of observations from Professor Jane Falkingham, Professor of Demography and Social Policy at the University of Southampton, who herself is a formidable expert on so many social uh, and demographic changes, including those affecting the generations. James, over to you to set the scene, and we will have a series of slides as well that will come up as you talk.
2: James, over to you. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let's see if I can. Yes. Great. So this is also an ESRC uh, project that's come to its end um, last year, and so the idea of this project was to try and look at all transfers. So it's the fir- I think it's the first. A comprehensive study looking at all transfers between the generations so we're looking at you know uh, private transfers within the household private transfers between households and transfers mediated by the government both cash and in kind and capital transfers too so by capital transfers I mean bequests and inter viva uh, gifts. So we try to sort of get data on all those particular transfers and put them together in a consistent system to come up and try and answer questions about intergenerational fairness. And I, I know this is as a, this is the perfect place to do this talk because I know you know it's an issue so close to the heart of the Resolution Foundation and all the work they've done here. So um, really looking forward to the Q and A at the end. Now. Um, To paraphrase Mark Twain, yes, um, I I wanted to write a short talk, but I didn't have the ability, so you've got a long one. So this is going to be a whirlwind tour, so in 25 minutes, I've got 25 minutes, I'm going to go through a lot of slides. I won't be able to go through it in full, full detail, but please fasten your seatbelts, and I'll try and give you a a very, very quick preview of all the results, yes, but we'll... If you've got questions about it please return at the end okay so that's that's right so what sort of questions were we trying to ask and what are the sort of answers we try to find so first we're, we're trying to think about intergenerational fairness and always you know we're all aware of all the press stories that the younger generations have had it tougher and it's uh, the things are balanced against them and there's a lot of press articles so we really wanted to look in this now the first thing Actually answer questions about intergenerational fairness is very, very difficult. So we're looking at it purely economically and a much easier question. So we're just saying, asking, has the distribution of resources, income, changed dramatically over time? Uh, And we try and answer that question first. And then we first look at sort of labour income and the labour market and see if the distribution of those resources has changed. And we find once you adjust for productivity... Yes, and for when the next generation, early generations, enter the labour market, they tend to be entering later into the labour market. So you have to adjust for both of those. We find actually the sort of share distribution of labour income has remained remarkably constant over time once you've done those adjustments. Then you look at wealth. Now, we're all aware there's been a massive, massive wealth boom. Yes, and this has benefited mostly the older generations. And so we've seen their assets, if you like, uh, skyrocket. However, during the same period of time, we've seen real interest rates fall. And so the income from those assets has not actually increased in in proportion to the wealth assets. So you've got to make an adjustment here also for the actual income flow from those assets, and not just look at at the stock of assets. So, yeah, we look at that and we find out that actually this wealth boom hasn't given the older generations as much, uh, if you like, advantage as you might have thought once you start thinking about the income flows from that wealth. Now, again, is it fair? Is it just We can't answer that question, but what we do try and ask is a slightly different question and says, are the younger going to get enough resources yes, in terms of flows, either through the government or through households, in order to support a consumption stream similar to the older generations. Sustainability. So we try and ask that, do the younger generations have enough resources to sustain a consumption stream into the future? And we say here, conditional on the public sector transfers remaining the same, we find that they do. So it doesn't look like Yes, based purely on private sector transfers. The younger generation nearly need to cut their consumption. However, you then look at the public sector and things look dire. Yes, and perilously unsustainable. So those are the three sort of questions I'm going to ask. and I'm going to take you through them now in the slides fairly fairly quickly and try and give you some evidence to back up that kind of view. Right, so we're going to first look at the labour market, and I think the key uh, data, if you like, here, is this structural break, or this change in about 2006, 2007, in productivity growth rates. It's absolutely dramatic. There was a recent article by Adam Tooze, which stressed this, and said it's historically unprecedented. Now, so... What, what, the, what does this imply? It means that the younger generations are not going to see the wage rises of the older generations. And it's not because of intergenerational unfairness or anything. We're just, the cake's just not getting any bigger. And so you're not seeing those traditional wage rises. The other, what you also might think is also, as I'll show in the next slide, this is, despite, and this is, this is a question we may return to, despite the fact that the younger generations, they are better educated, there's been this huge trend in higher education participation rates. Um, so this is a graph. that It's gone from below 15% to nearly 50% over this period from 1980 to today. So we haven't seen, so you might say, look, Productivity hasn't grown, but also once you adjust even for once you adjust for education, actually wages have fallen. So total productivity adjusted for for education has fallen over this period, and that explains a lot of why you haven't seen the young experience the sort of wage rises that you had that uh, the old experienced. So that we, you'll see a lot of these graphs over the next few minutes, yes. So this is looking at the age profile. So this is looking at cross-section over a number of years, since 1990, every five years, yes, looking at the distribution of labour income by age, right. So it is, it's taking into account participation rates, that's all. And I know Jane's going to return to this later in her slides, yes. So it's just looking at how is that labour income distributed amongst those generations, and how's that changed over time? And I think what, what I hope comes straight out of that uh, graph is the feeling, yes, it, broadly it looks similar, uh, it hasn't changed much, but there are these sort of shifts that this is the younger generations are, on average, starting work later, and that can be explained by their, far, their higher, higher education participation. Yeah, so they're entering the labour market later, and we expect them also to leave the labour market later. And so you've got to sort of take this into account when comparing, if you like, income going to the various generations. The fact that this this working age participation has shifted to the right over time. Now, how we try and then try and break that down and ask about, has it changed? We use, and there's lots of details in the paper, which is on the first slide, which uh, is, was published last year. We do what are sort of fixed effects or age period cohort analysis on this. And we try and break down these, these time trends, uh, these cross sectional profiles of income participation. And we say, what is the average over this time? How much of the change can be explained by the business cycle? We call those time effects, and how much is actually due to cohort specific effects that fact one generation is uh, is earning less than previous generations. So, on the time effects, which is the right hand chart, you see what you would expect. Yeah, the the, the wage changes with the business cycle. So you've got the recession there in 1992 and the Great Recession or financial crisis in 2008. And obviously that had a big impact on everyone's wage right across the age distribution. So you've got to to adjust for that. Um, And then on the right-hand side is the one that we're interested in, which is the cohort effects. Now, if you don't adjust for the fact that uh, participation in the labour market has shifted the young are entering the labour market uh, you do find a significant cohort effect i.e. that the baby boomers um, have benefited more or had a disproportionate share of the labour income compared to later generations however and this is really what I want to stress is if you adjust for this shift In terms of labour market participation, the fact they're entering the labour market on average two years later, and we expect them to leave the labour market two to three years later as well, you adjust for that, then the cohort effects disappear. And so the labour income looks like it's been relatively stable across generations over time. So that's and now looking at wealth. Now here wealth includes, and so this is why these numbers look large compared to what you'll see in the national accounts, it includes unfunded uh, pension, uh, if you like, pension assets of from the public sector workers. So that's the NHS, it's the police, it's teachers and so. So we've included that or we've estimated Certainly we've got data from the government on what that that liability is today, and we try to sort of uh, impute what it was historically. And you can see this massive boom in, if you like, in wealth. Now, it's mostly come from houses and from pensions, right? and what we have to think about is what, what impact has the interest rate had on those particular assets. And we've seen this massive drop in the real interest rate over the last 20 to 30 years. And that's kind of driven both the capital appreciation in houses and almost arithmetically the value of these pension assets, these pension claims or rights. Of this younger generation what it means is the value of these assets have gone up dramatically because of the fall in interest rates however the income flow from these assets has you know not changed nearly as much so if you look actually here I was trying to plot historical data on these returns so on the left is returns to the various assets housing uh, wealth Um, and if you like safe assets government bonds the main keen assets if you look on the left the returns look quite good even though you can see them falling over time this is because they include returns include the capital appreciation if you look on the right hand side I'm just looking at yields and this is probably a better indicator of what's going to happen in the future because that capital appreciation is unlikely to last well it's not going to last because interest rates are now going to if you like if anything trend upwards okay and so the, the right hand side is probably a better idea of the income you can see there's a fall quite a significant fall less so in housing more so in terms of uh, the financial assets and it's remember the real interest rate also drives the if you like the pension the value of those pensions as well So what do you see? Well, again, uh, this is how wealth is distributed. You see, as you would expect from this wealth boom, and most of the wealth is held by the older generation, you've seen this massive rise in wealth for the older generations. However, I want you to take into account that you must need to think more about the income flow from those assets rather than actually the level of those assets when you're thinking about, can you sustain a future consumption stream? Um, right. But what really matters in terms of wealth and intergenerational distribution is how much is going to be transferred down, the, for, down from the older generations. So they've re- received this sort of, if you like, appreciation in their assets. Yeah, how much of that appreciation are they going to consume and how much are they going to transfer down the generations? And so you need to look, if you like, at data on bequests. So this is the data from when you know uh, we did a study in two thousand fifteen, and you can see actually you know the bequest flow is quite substantial, and it's expected to rise as well into the future. Um, roughly, and we estimate here. I mean, you can, you've got the data from probate data, so you can get an idea of what it is. Um, but it's 79 billion, but it's probably under-recorded in 2015. And what we do is, because of trust and whatever, we follow Atkinson, and upgrade that by about 25% to take up the undisclosed assets that are bequested. And you roughly get a flow of about 100, 100 billion down per year. Gifts are also another flow between the generations. And these are interesting and also, I suspect, significantly under-recorded. So we've got data in the uh, Wealth and Assets Survey on that, and it looks like about 11 billion, but I suspect it's a multiple of that. Anyway, if you take the figure of 11 billion, you're off at 110 billion a year, and you're going to say that's going to grow at a rate of 1.5% into the future, and you look at what the value of those bequests, total values of those bequests, are going to be summed up over the future streams, and you get to nearly 4 trillion which is roughly the value of the housing assets. So it does look like if this bequest flow continues, then most of that value or appreciation, the value of housing, will be passed down the generation. However, bequests only go down one generation. So how is that, that wealth get transferred down two generations? You'll also wait about that. and that obviously, causes problems because it only goes down to the 60-year-olds who then hold it to their age of five, pass it down, and so on. Whereas you might argue that that wealth is probably better passed down two generations. So leave your bequests to your grandchildren rather than your children. Um, but we have, to, we have to look at that. Um, but it does seem, when you look at the data, that the generations do care, the older generations do and they are passing down a significant amount to younger generation. Another thing that we look at, and this is where we're sort of moving now to think about the public sector, is what are the dependency ratios? So it's been well documented that with, because of demographics, ageing the population, the, if you like, the number of old people per working people is going to change uh, and rise dramatically uh, to nearly 50 percent, the old age dependency rate, by 2060, over 50 Um, percent. I've used my definition for the dependency ratios the same ratios as the used by the pension commission, and that's given me the historical data. So I'm thinking here, youth dependency is anyone under 20, which is uh, uh, anywhere up to 19 years old. That's the definition there. And you see in this data this rise in the dependency ratio that we're all very well It's been well documented. However, I just want to highlight that if you make various adjustments, one, that to the youth dependency ratio, that actually the current younger generations are dependent for longer. They're staying in higher education. Yes, you make adjustments for that and you use estimates of when those shifts happened from the early work when I looked at labour income. And you also make adjustments for increases in the state uh, pension age, which is going to go up. It's going up, it went up to 66, it's going to go up to 67 later this decade and then up to to, to 68 after that in the next decade, in 37. And you make adjustments for that. And you see, actually, once you make adjustments for that, the dependency ratio yeah, looks remarkably flat over time. Um, you don't see that dramatic rise. Now, of course, this is assuming that people work up until the state pension age, which is a big big question mark there. Um, now, moving on to the public sector. So I hopefully, the impression I've created, yes, is that the private sector looks roughly, you know, more or less fair, but with questions to talk about our uh, returns to education, bequests, and so on. But the public sector is very clear. It's, it's a disaster. It's, you know. And here on the left-hand side, I can see, if you like, pu- and here it is, the public sector net worth. So it's not public sector debt, it's public sector net worth, and you see it's just fallen off the cliff. So public-sector net worth is actually public assets, capital assets. It includes the, all their net financial liabilities, that's the debt. And it also includes all public pension liabilities as well. And you see this dramatic fall-off here in the value of the public-sector worth. First, the assets were run down, that was the, you know, in the late 80s, 90s. Then you've seen the rise in public debt, which we're all aware of, but also we've seen this accumulation of public sector pension liabilities as well. And there's been this massive shift. Now, where has this money been spent? And on the right-hand side, you're just sort of looking at transfers through, you know, different transfers, and I want to focus on education, which tends to go to the young, and that has not increased, but transfers to the old here, and we're looking both here at pensions, and predominantly most of the health expenditure, and that has risen dramatically. So the public sector seems, yes, in terms of expenditure, is spending more on old age benefits than it is on young. And that there have been some significant trends there, and probably has led to, if you like, uh, you know, a change in the distribution of resources between the generations. So the public sector doesn't look so good. So how do we put the two together? Well, we've got to look at consumption. Because how do we try and measure what the impacts of these two? We've got to look at consumption. So here again, it's profile looking at consumption, and over time. And what you see in 2010 is this dramatic fall in consumption right across the board. But 2015, there's been a recovery, but it hasn't recovered much for the as much for the younger generations as the older generations. And in fact, there's evidence that the older generations now are spending more. So there does look like there's been a shift in that consumption expenditure we can do the age period uh, cohort analysis here and that gives you the same impression yes it's the uh, baby boomers gen Zs. yes they are experiencing a lot higher yes consumption over their lifetimes than the younger generations so there does seem to be here a shift in the distribution and what we argue here is mostly because of the shifts in the public sector not the private sector. To try and make it a bit more formal, we built these generational wealth accounts. So this is what I was talking right at the beginning about. We look at all transfers and we try and break it down. So this is an idea on the left-hand side. You've got all the incomes, uh, private transfers, labour income, government transfers and so on. Government transfers both in cash and in kind. And then on the right-hand side, we look how, in each year, how those resources are spent. And you've got a balance there, so, you know, yeah. Uh, And there's a complete balance. So we try and sort of equate how is the consumption afforded from the resources? And that gives you a breakdown of where the different uh, uh, sources of income come from to fund that consumption. And then what we do is we then project that forward. And we're rather optimistic here, and we project forward growth rates of 1.5%, which would be rather nice uh, if we saw that. But actually, it's not particularly sensitive to that. Because obviously, the income and the expenditure are projected to grow at the same rate. So if you use a lower rate, it tends to offset each other. So it doesn't make a dramatic difference what growth rate you assume. And then you accumulate what the value of this future stream is. So now we're looking at wealth rather than the income flows. And we see how much of, each, uh, how much of wealth each generation has in terms of these different uh, sources of income. So we've got, you know, their human capital now, which is, the, if you like, the value of their uh, future labour income, accumulated the present value of that, the present value of their transfers from the government, the present value of the transfers from other households, and so on, we accumulate all that and then we do the same for consumption, and the difference between that is what we call the bequest. So we look about how much resources does each generation need to fund their consumption, and what's left over must be funded from a capital transfer. So if they have to, uh, more resources than they need to fund their consumption, then the residual, or what's left over, is a bequest. And we see here the older generations are net bequestors. They have more resources than they need to support their consumption. The younger generations do not have enough resources. They have a deficit there to support their future consumption. And when we look at private uh, sector sustainability, we're trying to see, is the bequest left roughly equal to the bequest received? And if they are, then in some sense, the private sector is sustainable. Enough is being left to future generations to support their consumption into the future. And that's what we find here. They're roughly equal. Yes, and the total sum is roughly about that figure of four trillion that I mentioned earlier. However, the public sector, as I said, doesn't look so good. And here we look at the present value of the transfers made and received, and there's a big imbalance. Yes. Especially the old seem to be receiving a lot, much more, as you'd expect, than they are. And that that deficit is not made up in younger generations. And if we look at the unborn uh, from the projections, actually, they're again, according to government policy, likely to receive more than uh, they're going to make to the government again. So that's all going to accumulate up. And the net result is that we see a huge deficit in the public sector. Yes of roughly 3.5 trillion, or 150% of GDP. So that looks really unsustainable. And so the big question comes, how do you try and rebalance the public sector while maintaining what we have in the private sector, which looks sort of uh, almost generationally fair, if you condition on the public sector? And that's the big question as far as we see it. So, this is just a summary. We did it over time, and we get this idea of what we call the savings gap. The savings gap is that difference between bequests left and bequests received. And that's actually got better over time because of this value of wealth, this wealth appreciation, which has been being bequested on uh, if we assume current sort of profiles continue into the future been questioned so that part of the private sector savings gap has actually reduced but that's been offset almost exactly by the rise in the public sector deficits leaving aggregate sustainability um, roughly constant over this period since 2005 so to finish I hope I'm in time yes the the idea or the main conclusions are that if you look at the private sector and there are some big assumptions here, which we can talk about labor, though, in terms of returns to education. Do the young seem to be uh, getting a fair return for their higher education levels? Talk about participation rates. I know Jane's going to do that. But in terms of the aggregate distribution of labor income, it looks remarkably stable over time. Wealth, again, the returns have fallen, so we've got to look at the income from wealth. And we've also got to look at the perquest, how much that has been transferred on. Now, there's a big question that comes here, and one that we do not and we don't say anything about, and that's the uh, uh, intra-generational, the the cross-sectional distribution of those resources at a point in time. And there is obviously a concern that if these these bequests become really important for maintaining generational equity, that distribution of those resources is not fairly distributed across any given generation and there but that's a sort of cross-sectional inequality rather than a generational inequality issue well that's what i'd argue you've got this big rebalancing that's required between the public and the private sector the private sector looks unsustainable and somehow you've got to try and rebalance that in what you might regard as a generationally fair way Uh, And that, unfortunately, is likely to cause the younger generations more pain than the older generations. Okay, thank
1: you. James, thank you very much indeed. Uh, That was masterful and an example of just the power of of a proper national transfer accounts analysis, looking at both assets and income and looking at different generations. Uh, And of course, we're going to in a moment have some Q&A, and I should have said at the beginning, do... go onto Slido and uh, put down your questions or indeed upvote questions that have already appeared and we're on the hashtag connecting generations as well and we may even have one or two poll questions for our uh, online participants in a little while but first let's hear from Jane, Professor Jane Foggingham with whom we are working uh, as part of the Connecting Generations project. Jane over to you and Jane has stepped in at short notice which we greatly appreciate because your colleague at Southampton isn't well. Thank and you. so let's hear from Jane.
0: Thank you very much. So I'm going to be relatively short on this. And um, first of all, I want to thank James for a fantastic presentation. Really, really excellent. Some of the original um, stimulus for these um, national account transfer accounts that actually came from demographers, um, from, from Professor Ron Lee in the States. So I'm just going to give a little bit of a demographer's provocation to you. And, and uh, my comments are really uh, designed to stimulate some thoughts and discussion. I'm not going to give any answers. Um, but I've got three things I really want to talk about. One is uh, thinking about changing working patterns. And James has very much concentrated on the aggregate. And I just want to draw out some differences uh, between genders, taking a long-term view. Then I also want to think a little bit about the changing life course and the implications of that. And I'm going to think a little bit about changing life expectancy, but also some other changes. And then thirdly, I'm just going to give a, um, a publication around the importance of some intra-household or intra-family transfers uh, that James hasn't taken into account in his work, and in particular, I think about long-term care. So let's go to the first of these. And this is a really, really long-term um, view. And this is actually taking me back to my um, early days of my career, when I was at the London School of Economics and I was uh, working with Professor Paul Johnson, a different Paul Johnson to IFS Paul Johnson, he's an economic historian, and Asgars uh, IED, and indeed uh, James's brother, Tom Sefton. And I was a PI of a, uh, of a research project at the LSE called simulating social policy for an aging society beyond 2020 vision and we now are beyond 2020 so it's uh, quite exciting to be here at last but this is um, looking at cohort labor force participation over a huge uh, span of time so you can see the different cohorts there so using census data this is men and it roughly picks out the same patterns as James showed in terms of successive cohorts of men were are le- entering the labor market uh, later. Interestingly, they're leaving earlier, if you take a long-term view, you can actually see the emergence of the phenomenon of migration, uh, 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 migration, retirement, sorry, uh, during the, the 20th century. And you can also see, actually, for successive cohorts, they're cupped inside each other. So their overall labor force participation is actually lower. So that's men uh, over a long term. So I updated Paul and and Askar's work uh, using the latest census data that was available. Women, so completely different picture completely different picture and it's women's labour force participation that has been absolutely transformed across the last century and continues to be transformed and the labour force participation of the younger cohorts of of women is distinctly different from the older cohorts of women and so I think this is really important to just bear in mind a gendered perspective, which, of of course, uh, James's work is very much at the aggregate across cohorts. But I think if we start to take gender into account, we get a very different picture. This data can also feed in, by the way, to thinking about those dependency rates. So my very first paper that I published, if you want to go back to the Journal of Social Policy in 1988, you'll find it there. And that was actually challenging the notion of uh, demographic dependency rates which of course is a strange thing for a demographer to do, but actually economics matters more than demography. And if you redo your dependency rates and you take into account uh, economic activity, then you actually get not only the the, uh, almost stable that James was talking about, but you actually get declining dependency rates right across the last century because of the changes in female labor force participation. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk about. The second is just thinking about changes in the life course. Um, I want to give credit here to Professor Jim Vopel, who sadly passed away last year. But um, he put forward this provocation that perhaps we need to stop thinking about um, chronological age for defining old age. And perhaps we need to start thinking about uh, when you face perhaps a 1% chance of dying, that means you're starting to be old. And when you face a 10% chance of dying, you're starting to become very old. So I took uh, Professor Vaupel's provocation and thought, I'll have a look at that for the UK. So this is just plotting out age schedules of mortality and then looking at when you hit the 1% and when you hit the 10% chance of dying. I'll turn it into a table. <laughs> makes it a bit more easy to understand. And I've also put in uh, 2021. So I've taken the latest mortality data from ONS here. And for men, 65 really is the new 50. And 87 really is the new 75. Now, this, of course, uh, is reflected in the changes in in pension age that that James referred to. But it also has implications for how long different cohorts are going to live and how long they actually need to be spreading out their their, uh, wealth and their assets and, and their consumption. And we've seen remarkable shifts in life expectancy over uh, the last 50, 60, 70 years. Big, big changes. So for men, uh, really significant. And for women, the the numbers are very, very similar. They're not quite so tidy as 65 and 50, but very similar improvements. Of course, we've seen other changes in the life course. And I think this plays through to some of those um, intra-household intergenerational transfers. So we've seen shifts in marriage uh, with a, a fall off, actually, with a, a reduction in the, the um, marriage rates. Now, of course, uh, some people choose not to get married, but that still means that they're partnered. I'll come on to that in a moment. Uh, we've also seen increasing chances of divorce. And divorce is a very interesting one for thinking about transfers, because a lot of transfers of wealth actually happen around divorce, pension splitting on divorce. We also need to think about uh, step families, uh, transfer of wealth, how it's going to be distributed between different family members. We're also seeing a change in the distance between the generations. So I think, James, you were assuming a 25 year gap between the generations, but we've seen big changes in in the age of motherhood, an increasing distance between uh, the generations. And we're also um, seeing a uh, kind of a shift in, um, in the generations. So this, this graph here, this table here, is actually just showing uh, the rise of childlessness. So um, 20% of those women born in the 1960s uh, actually finished their childbearing period with, with no children. So that, again, I think is going to have some impact on the transmission of wealth between the generations if people don't actually have children to leave them to. Uh, The final point I just want to highlight is uh, uh, the importance of thinking about transfers between generations in a more holistic way. And uh, we're, we're eagerly anticipating the the results of of the last census for the question on uh, on unpaid care. I think that's due to be published on the 19th of January. So I'll be updating this as soon as that comes out. But at the last census in 2011, there were over 6 million people uh, providing unpaid care. This has been estimated by Carers UK to have risen over the last decade to around 10, 10 million. And if we look at the value of informal care, this estimate that uh, from 2017 is from the ONS uh, who looked at this. they were valuing it around 57 billion a year is the value of informal care. And that is actually three times as much as is spent by the public sector on care. So if we put care into the equation, I think that will also um, be quite interesting. So those are just my observations. Um, I've included uh, uh, some information on how much care is provided from the the time use survey. And you can see that actually the majority of care is being provided by those aged over 50 in terms of time. So again, things to think about. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Jane. Well, uh, two really interesting presentations, and this is the proper long-term view. I think Jane's first cohort that she analysed was born in 1862, and James asked us to consider our obligations to people not yet born. So we certainly try to cover a proper long uh, range of uh, perspectives here. Uh, perhaps I could just begin before we turn to Q and A with some observations of my own on what James was saying. I mean. Um, and going through it in is the kind of key points he made. First of all, on incomes uh, and wages, in particular, where he says adjusting for uh, entering the labour market slightly later and leaving slightly later, for example, you find relatively modest generation effects. But there is, as James himself said, this dramatic. Uh, decline in productivity performance in the last 10 or 15 years, which does mean that younger people entering the labour market now, or any young person who's entered the labour market in the last 10 or 15 years, has entered in a low productivity labour market. And of course, they're not, in James's model, protected from those low productivity effects on their wages. Um, Now, it's not a plot. By my generation of boomers to do bad things for the younger generation, but it does mean still if you come in now just because of when you were born, in reality your wages have underperformed because of this wider decline in productivity. So it's still been a bad time to be born and enter the labour market, but because of this wider productivity effect, and I think uh, I think James would accept that on. Assets, and I completely agree And all our work at Resolution, very much ties in with James's analysis that the big story here is the rise in the value of assets, the rise in the value of assets relative to income and relative to GDP. Um, and of course, pension assets are not in general heritable. That the heritability is, is housing assets. Uh, and I'm sure James's calculations are right and interesting that overall, The value of these inheritances are such that the asset position of successive generations, in aggregate, is going to be fine. But he says at the end, the interesting, challenging question is the distributional impact of inheritance, which is something that we're very interested in and uh, looking at. And of course, wealth assets are less evenly distributed than income. So, a society where assets have become more important than income is also one which is likely to face greater challenges of inequality and inequity. And uh, James says, oh, but that's just an intragenerational fact. It's an intra-generational problem, it's not intergenerational. But you could equally say that the intergenerational angle is this younger generation are facing a world where inheritance matters more and it is itself more unevenly distributed. So the environment within which younger people are functioning is one which is very different from the environment in which a previous generation functioned, where wealth mattered less and earnings mattered more. So again, um, although it's not necessarily a deliberate plot, being functioning in this environment where a more unequally distributed thing, asset, is more significant, itself creates a tougher world for the younger generation than previous cohorts, I would suggest. Um, and then, thirdly, there's, there's government and the state of the government's accounts. And uh, again, we've been very interested in fiscal rules. We've done some work on fiscal rules that look particularly at net, at net public worth, and the story there is shocking. And that I think what James is saying there is going to have to be tax increases in the future in order to avoid serious structural deficits. And he also, I think, rightly pointed out that not just are we leaving a much less healthy financial position for the public sector than it was, but the state has been reshaped in such a way as particularly to focus on services and transfers to older people with the growing significance of the NHS and the growing significance of pensions relative to other benefits with the triple lot compared with if anything cuts in the real value of benefits for families so we've neither properly funded this and we've tolerated a shift in the shape of the state which has tended to help older people and if these this funding is going to mean taxes in the future it's very likely that those taxes will fall on the younger generation. So this change in the shape of the state and the change of its financial position also has a generational significance. So I think if you put all that together you can still understand why a younger generation may feel that for various reasons they've been dealt a less favourable hand than previous generations such as uh, the Boomers, to which I fortunately, belong, Um, and I think you can see that cashing out in a figure in James's original paper, which is just consumption, and it shows that the consumption enjoyed, uh, and James will correct me if I'm wrong, I think it shows a 7.5% fall in consumption for today's young people compared with a previous generation of young people. So my view is that these kind of Uh, generational accounts are incredibly rich and we can look at them in different ways but they do actually bring out I think rather powerfully a series of challenges uh, facing the younger generation which in many ways are greater than those which faced the boomers as we work through a rather different economic and social environment than the one that James describes. Um, And uh, maybe I should quickly give James and then Jane, I don't know if you want to comment on that, are those... Fair observations, James, would you agree with that? Uh, uh, interpretation?
2: Uh, um, so, so, I just quickly... Yeah, respond to Jane yes, and, then and do you, respond to Jane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Jane made a couple of points. One is the number of children has declined, and that's, um, we do try and take that into account. And in fact, in another paper that came out in Science about four or five years ago, we looked at that across international, um, in an international uh, uh, comparison. Uh, so across different different European countries and looked at that, and so the, uh, there has been this sort of idea that we need more children, if you like, to work to pay for, if you like, the benefits of the older generation. So we, uh, we that was the aim of that paper, and to question that. And there is a big assumption here is that the younger generation are having less children. I've got five myself, so I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> but the younger generations are having far less, on average, less than two children per, per if you like, woman aged between 15 and 40. Um, what, do, what are the implications? Now, if you assume that it's a voluntary shift, i.e. it's a, different, it's a shift from quality to quantity... As uh, uh, Sorry, quantity to quality, and I'm not saying that's what, I, what happened to my children, they're, they're lo- lovely and they're very high quality, but if there's that shift to, to, to quality uh, versus quantity, and that's voluntary, then that does have implications because for the working generation now, yes, they, yes, they have to support more old people. And so their taxes must support old people. But effectively, they're supporting less of the new generations. And so if you like, they're saving a little bit on that transfer down, and offsetting, uh, and that's being offset by a transfer up. So there's a shift in the direction of those transfers, but not in the total load, if you like, and supporting independence. So, we try and look at that, and that's really important. And actually, we find out in that paper that actually having uh, a birth rate slightly below the replacement rate is actually one that maximizes consumption for the current um, middle generations. You don't actually need uh, a rising population, despite the fact the ageing, the demographic ageing. In terms of time accounts, the care huge issue completely agree with you we are hoping to look at those time accounts absolutely but that really brings up a point that i want to then bring today there There is and this is how you interpret these types of evidence yes and there seems to be a lot of evidence and i think this is really important that there is a massive cohesion between the generations yeah (laughs) The the parents really care for their children, they really care for the grandparents, and vice versa. And you're seeing that both in bequests and in the delivery of care. Um, So this is to answer David's point, and I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but purely an interpretation of that. The slowdown in productivity is not about an intergenerational distribution of resources it's about an economic underlying economic cause yeah which is a huge problem but it's not majorly a generational issue we have to try and grow the economy greater and we mustn't think of it in terms of intergenerational conflict or intergenerational distribution Um, again in assets again inequality is the problem with all this these bequests is that really an intergenerational issue or is that an inequality issue, um, and d- d- how do we label that? And that labelling is important. That labelling is important, and. It's just a personal view here, and i to happily talk about it. I, it's personal view is we have enough conflicts in the world as it is without creating conflicts and an idea of competition between generations when actually the evidence uh, seems to support a cohesion between the generations. So I think that labelling is really, really important and yes there's a productivity problem yes there's an inequality problem but does that mean there's an intergenerational issue um and the public sector yes it's just woeful i mean you know uh, we have a problem jane do you want
1: to do you want to make any comments
0: well, I, I largely agree with James. In fact, I, I vehemently agree with James around the generational conflict, and I think we should, we should avoid that. I think um the, the inequality is the critical thing, and I'm, I'm taken again back to some very early work I did with John Hills um, on lifetime distribution of, of resources. And there we did a piece of work looking at, it was called William Beveridge versus Robin Hood. Uh, and thinking about the role of the welfare state in terms of distributing across people's um, lifetimes and how much was actually... uh, people redistribution across their own lifetimes and how much it was between rich and poor. And we came out with about two thirds, one third. Probably if we redid that now, it would have shifted. And actually, Mm. I think that thinking about the inequalities and the role that the state plays in terms of distributing across, in terms of the Robin Hood, is probably very important but having the William Beveridge Mm -hmm. snapshot which is is basically what James is showing in terms of how the welfare state is distributing across different generations I think is critically important for then motivating the debate around the the inequalities and the Robin Hood role.
1: I would just add and then we we must have the wider q and I do think that for and the reasons are complicated. But we've seen, or I think in James's own presentation, that for various reasons, uh, for the younger generation, they're inheriting, coming into a world where their labor market returns are underperforming and where the significance of inheritance is greater. It needn't, and drawing attention to that is not to promote generational conflict. If, we do, if people do an analysis which shows that ethnic minorities are having a tougher time, they're not then denounced for promoting ethnic <coughs> conflict. So my view is that drawing attention to these factors is not trying to create generational conflict. It's, it's actually drawing attention to an obligation that many older people will feel they have to younger generations, and reminding them that we're perhaps not discharging it in the way we would have wished. Um, and as to how we're discharging, I personally, I I agree about personal relations, and I think the, it's going to be really exciting. The next iteration of this sort of analysis, it's gone beyond. Uh, In James's own work, it's gone beyond uh, public sector and private sector, it's much more integrated. The full-blown transfer accounts will also try to capture time and other forms of social investment, and that will further enlighten us. Uh, I personally think the summary of the evidence so far is we have turned out as better parents than citizens, that through family and private transactions, we absolutely show there intergenerational exchange. It's not so clear that through public policy we have similarly protected intergenerational fairness, and the and I think that would be one way you could actually summarise James's own uh, findings. Now we we will move on to QA, and I should also say we're going to do a uh, we've got some poll questions, and I'm just going to call up our uh, first question, which is. If we are, uh, if because, because of, of the analysis that James has just offered, another work we've done at Resolution, if you think that there's a real challenge in balancing the public books, falling net public worth, perhaps tax rises might be on the agenda <laughs> in the future, however much uh, politicians wish to deny if there are to be, If there are to be tax rises, um, in the light of the an- generational analysis you've just seen, why don't you vote uh, for four options—earnings, income, consumption, or assets—to bear the burden of the tax rises, uh, do, do participate, and we will assume that all of our many online participants who are registered as anonymous are, of course, Treasury officials, and we will look forward to seeing how they vote as well. Okay, so let's—we'll come to that in a moment. I'm just now going to, while you consider that, I'm just going to go to the question on Slido that has been upvoted uh, the most, which is an interesting one about, and it gets us back to this question of kind of social and generational divides. What is it, so it's a population divide between those that have homes and those that have landlords. And uh, we saw from James's own account, the crucial heritable asset being housing. Uh, and many of the owners of housing, the older more affluent owners of housing, also owning buy-to-let properties as well. So, James, is the how, your observations on this as a challenge to the social cohesion that you rightly call for?
2: I mean, this is, yeah, this is a tough one to summarise. It's a huge issue. Um, so, I mean, I, I, the underlying problem, I mean, the, the underlying problem is a lack of supply of houses. I mean, uh, yeah, and the the reason for the lack of supply of houses is, I, from what I understand, and I'm, you know, reasonably okay with the literature, but not an expert. But is is the difficulty of planning permission? <laughs> difficulty to get permission to build new houses, and that can sometimes take ten years through that planning permission process. It's incredibly expensive and deters a lot of construction companies from actually starting to build these houses. So, I mean yes it's a massive issue but i do think the solution is relatively easy i do think we have to reform planning laws and we do have to build houses and i think you know you know the, it's time that we yes in my backyard we have to build houses slowly and we have to i th- and this is going to be more controversial i think we have to think about the green belt and do we want to preserve the whole of the green belt, or can we take patches of that green belt and start building houses? I think the app's absolutely essential, and we have to reform planning permission. Otherwise, it does, it will lead yes, to frustrations. And you're seeing at the moment in London, in terms of rents and the difficulty young people are, are, fi- are finding renting and accommodation, it's just in a critical situation at the moment. Um, and it's really difficult,
1: yeah. And of course, that goes back, I think, to the intergenerational point. One of the things that first got me interested in this challenge was when I was um, uh, a politician facing an electorate and elections, not operating from the safety of the House of Lords. <laughs> when you actually had to um, win votes in a constituency, I was often called to meetings of residents' associations complaining about proposed planning there's going to be a new estate built. they're going to build more houses on this green field will you pledge to oppose it that was all that there's a lot of real politics there and um the i found one of the best arguments you could use in that environment and often the people at the Residence Association were the sort of over 50s who were good people they were on the governing body of the school they were engaged in trying to improve the local community I found one of the most powerful arguments you could use was absolutely an intergenerational one so look I know the houses you're living in now those were built in the 1960s and 70s the previous generation built those houses on green fields for you that you now occupy, don't you think we have a similar obligation to enable the younger generation to have access to housing simply in the same way that a previous generation discharged their obligation for you? And in terms of anything that made that a winnable argument, it was absolutely not generational conflict. It was an appeal to an under-recognized generational contract that I've no, I must put made yeah. that a, a more winnable argument but Jane I mean if that you have you have uh, studied all the social factors Is that your observations on this question
0: yeah I, I mean I just add to your uh, I mean I agree with both of you and I think we also need to think about when we're building those new homes uh, the structure of the of the tenure of them and, and think a bit more about more social housing um, that addresses the robin hood issue yeah yeah absolutely so so it's not it's not an either or it should be a both we should be growing the social housing sector as well as growing the owner-occupied sector i mean uh,
2: and there are ways and and ways that you can start to think about it that make this idea more affordable as well so i mean there's an option here for government to 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 land capture so as soon as you you know you put uh, p- uh planning permission on an area of land its value rises so who grabs that value yeah. yes and the, the government has within its power an ability to grab some of that value in order to fund the construction of the infrastructure around those new houses which is expensive so this does require a lot of thought and planning but it is possible there is a, there's a opportunity there
1: yeah and that was the brilliance of the old kind of new town model that's yeah. how they were funded Let's have a look at the reaction to our poll question and just see the uh, results. Then I might ask both of our panellists to comment, starting with Jane. I think it's time. Uh, Let's see how the uh 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 Um, if people do think that if there are to be tax rises, um, there's a majority for. assets very clearly ahead of the other three categories.
0: Jane, do you want to comment on that finding? Well, um, I'm not surprised, and I think James's talk has primed the... Um, it's a classic case, I'm <laughs> um, a social statistician as well as a demographer, and if you're going to have a questionnaire, we've had a good priming uh, up front on it. Um, but probably, um, probably that's right. I mean, if we, if we look at the balance of the tax, the current tax system, uh, maybe that's uh, an area we need to focus on.
2: Yeah. James? Let's put it in here, so when people think about taxing, so make? so the first point is what I, don't, I, I probably wouldn 't recommend, which is a rise in inheritance taxes, and that might be seen as one way. I do think this flow down by the quest and the ability of one generation to effectively. Uh, look after the next generation is important to a lot a lot of people and the trouble is if you raise inheritance taxes or drop those thresholds yes you are then going to encourage think, if I can't pass it on I might as well consume it yeah and we do not want to create those incentives where it becomes difficult to pass those assets down so I don't think the solution is increased inheritance tax I would uh, yeah however do we build it, and then the question is, do we just start a new tax, a wealth tax, or do we change our existing taxes? Now, my, my prior is that we would try and modify existing taxes. So we do want to tax health. Council tax needs reforming. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a huge need for that. It requires someone in government to take the political initiative here and to have the guts to reform council tax. It's so outdated. Um, and something needs to be done there. So we've got to try and tax these assets by reforming our current system. Another area that, you know, is national insurance on pension, pension benefits, yes. That's another way of taxing, if you like, these assets within the current system. So again, we're not making dramatic changes, and we're not... If you like, putting a block in the way of one generation supporting another, but we are trying to tax those assets more uh, heavily, yeah, yeah, or more fairly in line with income just to make it equivalent to income. Yeah,
1: yeah. and it is striking how even as assets have increased to seven or wealth to seven or eight times GDP, having been at three times GDP, meanwhile, the percentage of GDP going in. In capital taxes has stayed pretty much flat at about two and a half percent and of that council tax. We're almost lucky the council tax is counted as a capital tax in OECD measures because it's it's um, it's not really working like that. So anyway strong uh, a strong result there. I feel obliged to put up the next question um, because it has been so heavily upvoted. Um, And it is about, I have to say, unfortunately, it's about student loans and the cost of student loans. And as it's been so massively outvoted, I might, uh, I am familiar with the line of argument, what does the author of The Pinch think of the policies of the university's minister who (laughs) imposed uh, uh, 9K fees and, and extended student loans? So I might do a very quick comment on this myself, which is, of course, just that. Students don't pay up front, it is a repayment scheme. So indeed, this cohort will end up paying back for the cost of their higher education, but only if their incomes are above uh, quite a high threshold and at essentially with a higher rate of income tax at uh, 9% above that threshold. We did talk to lenders such as Council mortgage lenders when we did all this because I get a lot of people who say, oh, but my son or daughter is leaving university with 50,000 of debt or 75,000 of debt, and that means 50,000 pounds off the mortgage they can take out or 75,000 off the mortgage they can take out because that amount of debt will be taken into account by the the lender. The truth is that's not how the lenders see it. They treat graduate repayments as a fixed outgoing alongside lots of other fixed outgoings. so it will be, Part of the income calculation. If your income is high enough, it won't be counted as part of the debt. Um, And uh, as we saw from James's earlier analysis, we have been able to continue to increase participation in higher education for the younger generation. Um, And it would not have been possible to keep the growth going unless we had some other means of financing higher education apart from direct public spending. So I think I continue to believe that there's a reasonable argument. It was actually in the interest of the younger generation, but I don't know if uh, James or Jane want to comment any further on that one. I'm going
0: to, let, I'm going to defer to the, to the expert. I <laughs> yeah. um, did you take? I presume you took that into account. That we did. Calculated. Yes,
2: uh, and then we managed to take in the recent sort of estimates by the ONS about who's going to bear that. We put. We included that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean. I I would, rather than answering, I would just like to ask David a question on that one. (laughs) Go ahead, yeah. So, I know uh, the reasons for calling it a loan rather than a tax... Because I think you know that again, it's a, la- a labeling. Well, it's not just a labeling thing, but yeah. but, but I think that would actually help if yeah. it was just labeled a tax, yeah. a graduate tax.
1: And the number of people who do think it is like a conventional debt loan, and the amount of effort we have to put into explain, no, it's not like leaving university with fifty thousand of debt in an overdraft, or fifty thousand on a credit card, or even like an American style loan, which is repayable regardless of your personal circumstances. You're right. And the truth is that Vince and I did look at this, and we did have and. We would have loved to have um, rebranded it a graduate repayment scheme or something. The trouble was that the language of fees and loans was already embedded. And um, my judgment my judgment was that it was going to be an unwinnable argument if every time Vince and I were on the media we tried to call it something other than fees and loans. I had horrible memories of when ministers used to call the poll tax, the community charge, and when they made a slip and called it the poll tax, there was a great big cheer from the audience. Can everybody else call the the, the sort of everyone else called it a poll tax? And Mrs. insisted it was a community charge. And I thought there was a danger if we tried to rebrand the HE system, we would get caught mm. out like that. Anyway, let us um, move on. Let let us. Um, I, I think the other question that had a lot of up voting. um, goes back, it it takes us back into this issue of the dependency ratio Um, because Uh, again, again, without uh, getting into uh, and James has made some very interesting points about how we measure the dependency ratio Um, and I was relieved to know that as a 66 year old who's above pension age James doesn't regard me as a dependent which is a great (laughs) relief the the uh, the, the issue of the shape of the state is behind all this as well. And uh, the triple lock, co- uh, NHS costs, all those other uh, ways in which the sh- this, this, this state, which has got such an appalling performance on net public worth, has also got some quite expensive future promises. So James, would you like to b- respond to this question in that wider context? Well, very quickly, yes, it should go. I mean. I don't think I have many more to say. Right, triple lock should go. Jane?
0: I would disconnect it from the dependency ratio, uh, but I would say that, that we need to really look at um, the triple lock and we need to look at benefits for children and families.
1: Yeah, I mean our and, work...
0: And how they've come out of kilter. Yeah. So uh, um, uh, and I, we need to rebalance, so probably yes, it should go.
1: Yeah, I mean our work at Resolution shows that the value of benefits for families and children, has actually fallen relative mm-hmm. to inflation, whereas, of course, the value of benefits for pensioners is increased by more than inflation. And given that resources are limited, you can't do everything, to some extent there are decisions in the allocation of a social security budget, and yeah. those are distributional decisions that have I would like been to call taken...
2: out, I, You don't really want to reduce the standard of living of pensioners, but no. you want to stop this shift.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, let us... Uh,
1: I think we, we're getting we're getting towards the um, we're getting to running out of time, and I would just like to also invite for the sort of final observations from our panel. Again, this this issue of uh, which James called the intragenerational one, though it does particularly affect the younger generation, this issue of we're facing a world in which inheritance matters more, and several of the questions are about that. The question, um, do you expect a rise in inequality in future among the younger generation, Uh, we've had uh, because of the rise of inheritance. And I'm going to ask both of our panellists, starting with Jane and then going to James, and this is something that Jane herself does research on, just describe to us a world where inheritance matters so much more. Because wealth matters more, and inheritance is how you get wealth, and that's what mm. James's papers show. Um, what it means for intergenerational relations within the family—it means the kids are thinking: if I'm going to buy a house, I need to stay on good relations with my parents. It mean it may mean that that it, it various forms of intergenerational exchange or dependency may be prolonged. So, so kind of a world where inheritance matters more, just help us think through the implications of that Jane
0: yeah I, I mean, we are doing research on it at the moment and I think I think we can already start to see a change in the pattern of inheritance so you mentioned David that perhaps the takeaway message from this was to change your will and and move it to the, the grandchildren we're already seeing um, quite a shift in inter in what's it called when you're still alive inter vivos. intervivos inter vivos. Oh, yes. transfers yes. and and um, the bank of mum and dad, but actually it's the bank of, of grandmum and granddad who are starting to play a major role. So I think that we, we're going to um, see a change in the shape of which inheritances take place. Um, and, and I'm, that's really interesting, uh, it's just emerging evidence at the moment. My slide that I put up on, on divorce rates is, is interesting. We did some qualitative research that I was telling David about yesterday um, that actually showed that we're seeing divorce rates now rising amongst those 60 plus and this is this is actually starting to have some interesting family conversations around what it means for your Uh, Parents to divorce post 60 and then get remarried. And thinking about inheritance and stepfamilies and stepchildren and all sorts of things. So, um, uh, lots of new patterns emerging that I think we're going to need to think through, but will probably change the the pattern of inequality.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, very interesting. Spreading
0: it across more more people. Yes, James?
2: Uh, Just to reiterate, I think most. I mean, it's great that the, the generations pass it down, but I mean, a lot of this banker mum and dad is about buying houses, so it, it, we've already covered that. I and mean, we need to build more houses, and I think that try and reduce the dependence we have on these transfers for, for young people to get in the labour market. Yeah. did uh, the housing market, sorry.
1: And let me end with a, with a speculation of linking this to our wider theme, our economic inquiry, which we're doing here at Resolution in partnership with the LSE. Because one of the things that we've identified in our interim report, stagnation, is that we're we're becoming a less mobile place, less mobile geographically, less mobile uh, in the labor market, younger people moving jobs less frequently than younger people used to, and younger people um, not necessarily moving so far away from the parental home as to try to boost their earnings. And it may be that this is because families matter more. We've seen, just in the course of the last hour or more, increasing amounts of informal social care, increasing amounts of time delivered between different generations of family to um, care for each other. We've also seen a rise in the significance of gifts, inheritance, transfers between generations. Um, So whereas one picture of modernity from social scientists used to be a world in which the family mattered less, our alternative picture Which we're seeing today is this is a world where family matters more, and if family matters more, one of the consequences may be lower levels of geographical mobility because you stay closer to where the other generations of your family may be. So this uh, we're trying to as part of our research project here is try to, in partnership with Southampton, understand better the extent to which the type of changes we've been discussing today also have changed the way in which we conventionally think of the functioning of the labour market. Thank you all very much for your participation, thank you particularly to Jane and to James for excellent presentations and the cause of ever more ambitious and inclusive generational and transfer accounts has taken another step forward. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.